everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Most Accurate Podcast presented by 444.com. I'm your host, Greg Smith, and in a little bit, Jim Sonnes from Numberfire will join me to break down week six and look ahead to the week seven waiver wire. Before we get to him, though, I want to talk to you about the music on today's show. It's a song called Rise or Fall by Black Rebel Motorcycle Club from their 2003 album, Take Them On, On Your Own. To hear the full track as well as all the other music I use on these episodes, check out the TMAP B-Sides playlist on Spotify, which is linked in the show notes. And if you want to take BRMC's advice, go on your own and take some people on a daily fantasy, you should do it with the sponsor of this episode, and that's Fantasy Draft. The best part about playing DFS at FantasyDraft.com is that it's rake-free. That's right, 100% of entry fees at Fantasy Draft are paid to contest winners. So if you want to try it out on a free 7-day trial, go to FantasyDraft.com, sign up with the promo code 444, that's the number 4, F-O-R, then the number 4 again, and say goodbye to the rake. Now I'd like to bring in Jim Sonnes of NumberFire.com, host of the NumberFire DFS podcast. You can follow him on Twitter, at Jim Sonnes, that's J-I-M-S-A-N-N-E-S. Jim, it's been a while. Good to have you on. How you doing? I am doing great, Greg. It was kind of a weird day yesterday, I would say. There have been a lot of weird days, I would say, I guess, throughout this year. But yesterday is especially weird where a lot of my plays did not do well, but it still wound up being very, very slimly profitable. So I felt very lucky to escape unscathed. How about you? Yeah, same thing. This season has been very strange in the way that each week... I feel like I get a certain number of calls right, a certain number of calls wrong, and sometimes how those play out completely contradicts how I actually succeed or fail, either with my picks against the spread, uh, you know, with my teams in fantasy, and I, it seems like every week is more and more of a mixed bag where half my teams do well, half my teams do poorly, and it's not always directly correlated to how well you know my actual takes were uh, in terms of rankings and picks and all that stuff so it's, it's been a wild season uh, but big picture what stood out to you in week six yeah I think that for me it was uncertainty with guys roles and I think for me it stood out that there are certain running backs who we tend to have a decent amount of confidence in and maybe have performed well this year who aren't getting work in the passing game and I know this varies by scoring setting but I play in a lot of half PPR leagues and I need targets uh, because a target for a running back is worth twice as much as a carry. And there are some guys who have had success this year or who had success on Sunday or who we may want to use going forward who haven't gotten those targets. So I'm talking about Mark Ingram. Uh, his snap rate went down. Uh, it was actually lower than Gus Edwards yesterday. He had three targets in that game and, that was a game script that's set up to be a lot of Mark Ingram. He didn't get that. Uh, he did score, which I think gives you an out to potentially sell Mark Ingram. And if you can do so, I would try my hardest to uh, ditch him right now because I think the use yesterday for Ingram was really, really concerning. And I've had concerns about him broadly this year because, again, I love targets. And he hasn't gotten a ton of those. Uh, but I think Sunday was the biggest concern there. I also... You know, I, I was kind of into Malcolm Brown. I know that the matchup was abysmal, but it was a, t a situation where I expected the Rams to win that game. And I expected Brown to get some targets in that offense. He ran 16 routes, I believe, according to Pro Football Focus. Didn't get a single target, though. And the Rams haven't targeted the running backs at all this year, so that shouldn't be a huge surprise. But that kind of makes it hard for me to assess how I would handle Malcolm Brown next week on the road against Atlanta. That's a spot where I would expect the Rams offense to do really well. But if he's not going to get targets, it's so hard for me to have faith in him one way or another and even just kind of know how to handle him. So uh, Tevin Coleman, he's had a really good red zone role. He's getting work near the end zone, which I love for running backs. But he's had three targets in two games since returning. 
it's just kind of hard for me to assess those guys like Ingram, like Coleman, and uh, like Malcolm Brown, where I know they're going to get rushing volume, but I don't really care about rushing volume. I want passing volume, and I'm not sure if they're going to get it. So I think that they're, with Ingram, there's a spot to sell. Devin Coleman could be a similar thing, uh, but it's it's just so hard for me to assess guys like that. Do you have any concern that you might be overvaluing the value of those targets and undervaluing the goal line roles that those running backs have because yes Mark Ingram and Tevin Coleman aren't really getting targeted in the passing game yeah but if they're getting used on the goal line and they're giving you that potential to you know put up six points on a single play right that is a big deal in fantasy like touchdowns drive scoring in fantasy more than anything else like PPR like full full point PPR is a little different in that if you get somebody who really is that target hog that can be a big deal but we know that even at the running back position those guys are so few and far between that they're basically unicorns. Uh, yeah. Do you have any concerns about that? So my research, uh, again, I'm mostly in half PPR league. So if you're in a standard league with no points per reception, this is different. But in a half PPR league, a target is worth twice as much as a carry. So basically what I do is I add up each player's carries plus two times the number of targets each week. And when you look at the top end of those leaderboards, it will always be guys who get passing down volume. And not only does that give them a good ceiling, I mean, we know it gives them a good floor. Like that's kind of assumed for guys who get passing down work but it's also huge for their ceiling and it's really hard to have a huge game if you don't get those targets uh so like frank gore i think is like a great example of this like he's gonna get his 15 carries he might get two targets but there's uh, it's hard to get a real a uh, real ceiling and with guys like tevin coleman sure they can get out ahead of the rams right away he can get his 18 carries but that's kind of like the best possible script for him. And his best possible script is maybe he scores two touchdowns, but I guess like I want more of a ceiling. And when guys like Ingram and Coleman have those touchdowns, I'm inclined to cash out on those touchdowns and try to move them for guys who will get me a steadier floor and also have a path to a better ceiling. So I think that's kind of, it's kind of a perception versus like, reality thing where yeah they have value for sure but they also allow me to sell them because of those touchdowns because touchdowns at least for me are harder to predict and they're harder to ensure going forward so i think that with ingram specifically in coleman i think that it gives you an out where if you are like me and really do value targets you can kind of move on now and try to sell them for something else that may be a bit more steady uh so i think it's more so People may value touchdowns more than I do uh, because I think that if I can get those targets, I can feel great about the floor. And it's not necessarily going to be guys who are devoid of touchdown value in the future. See, I don't necessarily disagree with the idea of selling those guys that you're mentioning. But how realistic is it to be able to trade for the type of commodity that's better than that? You know what I mean? Like, if someone has Alvin Kamara, they're not going to trade Alvin Kamara. Ezekiel Elliott, same story. Like, I'm wondering if this is kind of a pipe dream that you have of chasing something that's better than what you have, whereas, at at least with Mark Ingram and Temin Coleman, you have guys who, yes, will get used if the game script is right, and yes, have that goal line role locked down so that they can supplement, you know, a mediocre or a bad game with a score. And I, I guess... I, I understand the idea of selling touchdown variants. That makes a lot of sense to me. I just don't know if what you're targeting in return is actually going to be there for you. 
Well, I think it depends on the perception of other guys because there you can get players who are not going to be who aren't going to cost you a ton who are going to get work in the passing game. Uh, like Josh Jacobs, uh, before their bye week, his role actually increased. Uh, he ran a bunch of routes for Oakland, which he had not been doing in the past. And if you can move someone like Mark Ingram or Tevin Coleman for someone who has a path to passing down work in the future, I think that's pretty attractive. And again, not every running back who gets targets is going to be crazy expensive. Royce Freeman and Philip Lindsay have cannibalized each other pretty much the entire year, but when they're on the field, both those guys are getting looks in the passing game, and neither guy is going to cost you an arm and a leg, and you're probably going to be able to get something along with them if you're using moving someone like Mark Ingram. So not every back who gets those targets is going to be crazy expensive in fantasy as far as trying to sell them for something else. So I think for me, it's looking for guys who have that passing down work who may be a bit undervalued because maybe they haven't had the touchdowns. I'm not saying Lindsay and Freeman are going to, you know, score touchdowns. They're more so just an example of like not everyone who gets work in the passing game is going to cost you an arm and a leg. And I'd rather try to get guys like that than the guys who are hyper, hyper dependent on touchdowns. Yeah, I think that's fair. But the flip side of that is you're talking about players who are are on worse offenses, worse teams in general. And that is one thing I still like about Mark Ingram, about Tevin Coleman, is based upon the team context that they're in. And maybe it's a little different for Coleman now that, you know, the Niners have uh, McGlinchey injured and whatnot. Like, maybe that's more concerning. But, you know, the coaching there, the scheme there, seems to set Tevin Coleman up for success. Um, And that's not to say that Josh Jacobs isn't going to have success. But uh, that's more of a concern with him, the fact that he's in a bad offense. But, um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting inflection point here between, uh, you know, how much do you value Tevin? touchdowns versus receptions how much do you value a good offense versus a bad offense when you're talking about the running backs on those teams and uh, I, I think it's cool to talk about this and think about it but I think all these arguments can cut in different directions and you have to be mindful of that and it always depends on what the price is like if people aren't yeah. going to give you a viable piece in return for Mark Ingram then just keep it keep those touchdowns that's totally fine uh, but if you can get a like maybe it's for a wide receiver maybe it's for a patch there instead of another running back I would just at least test the waters uh, because Again, getting outsnapped by Gus Edwards and losing 11 carries uh, to, to, between Edwards and Justice Hill, that's a pretty major red flag, regardless of what team he's on. I think Ingram specifically is a guy I would be trying pretty desperately to sell. Yep, makes sense. Uh, the thing that stood out to me in week six was the importance in fantasy associated with identifying those funnel defenses. You know, the defenses that either steer the opposing offense to pass more or to run for, run more. Uh, like the pass funnels this season have been Philadelphia and Tampa Bay. I think you could also make a case for the Arizona Cardinals, for Atlanta, for Houston and Oakland. Uh, the run funnels have been uh, the Green Bay Packers, Kansas City Chiefs, Cleveland Browns, and maybe you can throw Miami and New York in there. But I think that Dolphins and Giants might not be true run funnels. They might just be so bad to the point where they generate run-favorable game scripts. I think that's slightly different than uh, a situation like Tampa Bay, where Tampa Bay has such a good rushing defense that opposing teams say to themselves when they look at that matchup, why would we run against these guys? Because they're going to stop the run, and they're terrible against the pass. Let's just pass all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Really coming into this week thought that Denver was still one of those teams as a run funnel, but I'm wondering if that was just a small sample mirage based upon the first few weeks of the season. Like, I was on Tennessee as underdogs going into Denver, and maybe I didn't factor in uh, the Broncos' home field advantage quite enough playing at elevation, but that was a a result that really surprised me. I thought Tennessee was going to be better in that game, and when we're talking about 
you know, identifying these these funnel defenses either towards the pass or towards the run. I think that's really crucial in setting your expectations for a given matchup for the certain types of players in each matchup. And we also need to understand that funneling to either passing or rushing is dependent upon the opposing offense. Like, for yeah. example... Arizona might not go run heavy against a run funnel team like Green Bay because that's not the identity of the Cardinals offense. They want to pass. So it has to kind of line up in both directions for this funneling to work. But this past week was a really good example of some of those flaws for defenses being really exposed. Philadelphia and Tampa Bay being the two that are that are most prominent in my mind. Um, what do you think about this concept of yeah. funnel defenses, Jim? I think it's valuable. I think it's uh, important to try to identify which teams intentionally do that. And I think that may have been the issue with Denver. Uh, you know, back when Wade Phillips was their defensive coordinator, they would always grade out terribly against the rush. But that was because Wade Phillips was, is a super smart guy and wanted teams to run against them because he knew it was less efficient than passing. And when a team intentionally lets you run against them, that means that there it's like a, a scheming thing where they can sometimes flip that switch and say, no, you're not going to run on us. And I think that's kind of what we saw with Denver where – in general, they want teams to run against them, but I'm guessing they looked at Tennessee, you know, Vic Fangio, also a very smart guy, yeah. and said, if they're going to beat us, we're going to make them do it through the air. So I want to identify teams that intentionally funnel you towards the rush. I think Kansas City does this. The problem is I don't think they can stop the rush even if they tried, uh, whereas Denver actually does have the personnel. So for me, it's always, does this team have the personnel to stop the run if they want to, or are they just hideously atrocious in actuality uh and with philadelphia the personnel there's not like they're uh, they're also bad so i think with denver they're kind of a team where maybe i shouldn't but i give a lot of credit to vic fangio for being a i mean like vic fangio is a smart defensive guy i don't know what he, his qualities are as a legitimate head coach i don't think we can ever truly judge if a guy is a good head coach in most scenarios but i think he is a legitimately smart defensive mind and I want to give him that credit when I'm assessing matchups against them. Uh, so I think that's kind of the, the distinction for me. The other thing that I look at is, you know, we talk about trying to exploit funnels. Is the team smart enough to take advantage? That was <laughs> no. the concern I had with the Vikings, with Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen. Like, okay, I know the smart route is to attack this team through the air, Will they actually let the offense do that? Like in DFS, I had some Stefan Diggs and I had, I had some Adam Thielen, but I couldn't go harder than some because I didn't know if they would take the rational approach. Uh, and that was a concern for me. So it's trying to predict what coaches will do, which is a, a fool's errand. <laughs> exactly. It's going to go wrong a lot of times. But I think with some teams, you can do so. Uh, and it's just kind of knowing where you can and where it's a potential trap and handling it like that. Let's move on to some of the key injuries from Week 6. And I want to start with Amari Cooper, who has a bruised quad. These injuries just continue to pile up for Dallas. I think this is kind of concerning for their offense as a whole. Uh, but apparently it's only a pain tolerance issue mm -hmm. with, or maybe not only a pain tolerance issue with Amari Cooper. But when I think bruise, I think, and they talk about how much pain he was in, I think that that's probably the biggest hurdle to get over here. How concerned are you about Amari? How concerned are you about this Dallas offense as a whole going forward? Yeah, the Dallas offense, I think because most of their injuries are short-term, like Amari, like you said, it's a pain tolerance thing. They initially thought that Tyron Smith and Lyle Collins were both going to play this week, and yeah. obviously that didn't wind up happening. But what that says to me is that they're probably going to be back pretty soon. And the thing that's encouraging to me 
is that even with Amari Cooper out, even with Tyron Smith out, Lyle Collins out, Dak Prescott was still efficient as a passer. He had a .28 passing net expected points per dropback. Uh, that's number fires metric. That's twice the league average. And sure, that's because the Jets personnel uh, in their secondary is bad. But seeing him do that while Amari, Smith, and Collins were all out is pretty encouraging to me. So I think that Dak Prescott even if Amari Cooper were to miss some time, would still be a pretty viable fantasy asset. Uh, so I think my level of concern with the Cowboys is not that high. Um, I'm concerned that they keep running as much as they are, and I think it's super annoying, and I wish they would let Dak Prescott thrive because he's, he's, he's playing really well this year. And he had a couple of bad throws in that Green Bay game, but that, every quarterback has bad throws. We can't focus on those. Every quarterback does that. Mm-hmm. So... I feel pretty okay about the Dallas offense. Um, I think that these these injuries don't sound like they're super long-term. And if they are long-term, it seems like they have enough talent elsewhere to still be decently efficient. So I guess I, 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 I'm not that concerned. Is that is that an error on my part? I, I'm not sure. And that's why I asked the question, because I'm hoping you'll help me out, Jim. You're, you're not really doing that right now. I'm a little <laughs> disappointed. Uh, but no, I, I think the offensive line issues are the ones that concern me the most. Like if Collins right. and Tyron Smith continue to miss time, I think that's bad for the whole offense. I mean, we, we you and I are both uh, kind of offensive line stands secretly, maybe yeah. not so secretly, but we, we, yeah. we, I know that we both appreciate the importance of that position group uh, to an offensive success. And th- that's the big concern to me. Cooper, if it's just a bruise and, and you never know, I, I actually am a little skeptical when it comes to trusting these injury reports, you know, the day sure. after, like, let's see what they're reporting on Thursday and Friday. There are some play calling issues here that are probably more concerning, like as you discussed, yep. and as we just, uh, as I just renoted, but this is one where I'm not too worried yet. Uh, but if this continues to trend out for Dallas, I, my level of concern is going to go up. The problem is you want to get out ahead of this stuff in fantasy football, right? Like you want to be fading these guys the the week before everyone else is fading them, right? Right, exactly. And I think for the Cowboys, we're at the point where everyone else is going to fade them, and I'd be more inclined to buy in uh, just because I am not as concerned. And again, it's because of Dak Prescott. Like he's been really good this year, and I think that that gives a floor to this offense even when there are injuries because they played that entire Jets game without Amari Cooper. He was out there for – basically a couple of snaps uh, before he left that game. So I think it gives me a good amount of confidence. And I think people are panicking about this Dallas team. They are asking when Jason Garrett will get fired. I think that there's actually kind of a buying window here. So that's, that's my definitive take is that it's actually not a terrible time to buy the Cowboys because people are freaking out. And because it doesn't seem like their impactful injuries are real long-term concerns. Where do you fall on the spectrum of, the impact of this Amari Cooper injury on Michael Gallup, potentially. Yeah. Like, if Cooper does miss time, does Gallup's value go way up because he becomes the number one receiver? Or does it kind of stay stagnant because he's going to receive more defensive attention? Like, how do you break that down? I think it kind of cancels out uh, because Gallup's volume has actually been really good this year. In the four games he has played, he has 26% of the Cowboys' targets. Uh, so, like, I think the volume if it goes up, is not a major addition because it's already been pretty good. But the d- additional defensive focus on him, kind of similar to what we saw with Amari Cooper in that New Orleans Saints game where Gallup couldn't go, mm-hmm. that'd be a negative. So I would say the volume is good, but it winds up being a wash because of the decreased offensive efficiency and the de- decreased efficiency in those targets. So I would say it's a wash for him. 
It'd be an upgrade, like, it could make Tavon Austin potentially playable. He played 93% of the snaps on Sunday. Not sure how much of that was because Randall Cobb couldn't go, uh, but Cobb's someone I wouldn't expect to ever really be, like, a 90% snap guy. Probably never going to get a ton of targets either. So the biggest, I don't want to say winner, uh, but the biggest person who would get a bump an impactful bump might be Zeke because he'd get more targets in the passing game. They might be more inclined to keep running. And I was concerned about Zeke's targets. Uh, but if Cooper misses time, that would probably keep those targets pretty steady for him. So I think it's kind of a, a wash for Gallup. It's kind of a wash for Zeke too, because the targets are nice, but they'd likely be uh, fewer scoring chances if, if Cooper misses time. So I think based on the initial diagnosis of Cooper, I'm inclined to buy just because again, it sounds like it's not that bad for him, Smith, or Collins. Uh, but if he were to miss time, I don't think anyone here really benefits on the Cowboys. Jason Witten's targets did go up yesterday. Uh, <laughs> uh, from like He was around four or five targets per game. Yeah, he was he got, four every single game. <laughs> he got, and he got seven yesterday. Yeah. So I think that's the other potential beneficiary if Cooper can't go. But you don't want to be putting too many eggs in the Jason Witten basket. Correct. He's fine. Like he's, he's a good placeholder if you need that type of player at tight end, but he's not a guy I'm going to be actively going out to buy if, uh, if Cooper's going to miss some time. Now we could be seeing a similar situation with the Denver wide receivers. Emmanuel Sanders hurt his knee and Cortland Sutton's been coming on this year. I, I've been pleasantly surprised by him. I was not expecting this level of a breakout isn't the right word, but this level of a jump up in value uh, coming into 2019. But uh, Sutton's been really good. Uh, if Sanders can't go, and, and that's possible because they're playing on Thursday night in week seven, although the knee injury that he suffered is reportedly not serious, according to James Palmer of the NFL Network. What's your take on this situation? Is this another one where if Sanders can't go in week seven, Sutton's value probably stays about the same? Or do you think Sutton could go uh, a little higher in value uh, if Sanders misses time? So I think that I would be okay buying Sutton kind of regardless of what the diagnosis of Manny winds up being because mm -hmm. he's been sneakily really good this year. Uh, you were kind of alluding to that before. Uh, but when you look at Sutton's overall numbers, they're not going to blow you away because Joe Flacco is not going to support a great passing offense and they don't want to throw. They want to lean on Philip Lindsay. They want to lean on Royce Freeman and they want to attack you via the ground. But Sutton has still had at least seven targets in every game. He has 25% of their overall targets this year. And that gets more juice when you also throw in the high leverage nature of those targets. He has 42% of their targets lead 16 yards downfield this year. He has 30% of the red zone targets. And again, those numbers are lower because Flacco doesn't throw deep all that often anymore, and they don't make it to the red zone that often. And when they do, they're generally running. But it means that I can be more okay with taking on a piece of a bad offense when I know that the leverage in the targets in the volume he's getting is pretty good. There is a situation in which Sutton's value would increase if Manny Sanders misses time. I don't think his value would go down, and I like what I've seen from him so far. So I think broadly, I am okay buying Sutton regardless of the Manny diagnosis, in which case I think it's probably smart to buy him now before we get real firm confirmation of where Emmanuel Sanders is, because if he's healthy, cool, that's fine. I am okay with Sutton in his current role going forward. I think that he's been pretty solid, but if Manny does miss time, it is within the range of outcomes that Sutton gets 30-ish percent of their targets, may probably not yet be the high end, uh, and could become this target monster in a bad offense. And that still has a lot of value. So I would say it's worthwhile to explore Cortland Sutton now and then see if he can hit that high end, because even the baseline for him is pretty good right now. 
Do you have any interest in buying in on Adrian Peterson going forward? Because there's a confluence of factors here, right? Yeah. One, Chris Thompson is hurt. He had a foot injury in week six. And two, under new coach Bill Callahan there, you know, interim coach, they want to be running the ball more. And I, I mean, we can say what we will about that. Like, that's not necessarily a, a good thing for Washington, but it might be a good thing for Adrian Peterson, right? Sure, it could be. My concern is that their next three games are at home against the 49ers. No. On the road against the Vikings on a Thursday, no, and then at or on the road against the Bills, no. Woof. It's three bad spots where Washington's probably going to get pasted, and they're probably not going to be able to run deep into the game even if they want to. So I would be very inclined to rid myself of Adrian Peterson as po- if possible. If people don't realize how terrible their schedule is, if people want to buy into Bill Callahan wanting to run the football. I think with that, when they are in neutral scripts or when they are ahead, they're going to run. And that's good. But I don't think they're going to be in neutral scripts all that often. Uh, those three games I mentioned are their final three games before their bye. So the next time Peterson, in my eyes, will be a really good fantasy asset would be November 17th, which is a more than a month from now. So I would, if you can get anything for him, I'd move him now. Two more quick injuries to talk about at the tight end position. Uh, one, we don't really need to go into detail on. Jeff Swaim had a concussion, uh, the tight end, tight end for the Jaguars. I mean, I assume he'll be back in, uh, you know, two weeks, something like that, as most of these players typically are when they suffer concussion. Uh, the bigger one to talk about here is Will Disley, uh, Torres Achilles. He's out for the year. What does this do to impact Russell Wilson, the Seahawks offense as a whole? Because Disley was sneakily a very important part of this team. Yeah, and he was actually performing really well and i think that's why they felt very okay with moving nick vanette because disley was actually giving them really good production and he was a good player which means that this is probably going to be at least a slight downgrade for this offense but he left that game pretty early yesterday and russell wilson was still decently efficient um i think that's encouraging it could lead to a bump in targets for a guy like jerron brown just because like jerron brown's on the field at all times but because russell wilson has better guys to throw it to he's not throwing that direction uh so it could lead to a bump of targets for him or potentially to dk metcalf but i don't think there's any major ripple effects here like i would love for it to be an increase for tyler lockett uh but lockett is already viewed in a pretty positive sense and he's had four four and five targets the past three games so i don't think there's any real big takeaways here maybe it's a slight downgrade for russell wilson's efficiency but he's been so efficient so far that that doesn't matter too much. He's he's a really good quarterback. He will continue to be a really good quarterback. He's running more this year. So I don't think it, there's any major ripple effects on the Seahawks. It just stinks for people who got Disley off waivers and picked him up at the right time. And now we'll probably no longer get to use what was a pretty sharp ad on their part. Breaking news from Jim Sonis on the Most Accurate Podcast. Russell Wilson is good. I know. We're digging deep here. <laughs> Let's get to the booms of the week. Uh, Jim, which of your fantasy starters made the biggest or most unexpected positive impact on your fantasy teams this week? Uh, so I actually was in a really bad spot in one league. Uh, it's a deeper league, and I needed a quarterback, and there was nothing good on waivers. Like, I couldn't go to Kyle Allen. I, I couldn't, you know, go that direction. And I had to choose between Gardner Minshew and Sam Darnold, and I probably made the wrong choice and go in Sam Darnold, like from a process perspective. Mm. Uh, but I hated that game between the Saints and the Jaguars. because It seemed like it'd be a very slow game. Didn't seem like there would be a lot of points in that game. And I respect the Saints defense. I don't have that same level of respect uh, for the D- Dallas defense. So I went with Darnold over Minshew. And I again, I don't know if that was the right process play. That could have been very stupid on my part, but it worked out. Uh, and I think that was an unexpected production thing because 
I thought Darnold would be a major lift for the entire Jets team. I didn't think he himself would be a great fantasy asset right away. I probably got a little bit lucky in that, uh, but I think that seeing that was surprising, and it does positively impact the way I view the Jets. Now, I don't think you need to buy Sam Darnold right now because they have the Patriots coming up next week, and Sam Darnold is probably going to do very poorly in that game, both from a real-life perspective and a fantasy perspective. But I think after that game, we can start to get really into Darnold, Robbie Anderson, Jamison Crowder. All those guys are going to be really good fantasy assets after that game because they still got two with Miami coming up. I believe they face Washington not too far down the... Yeah, that one's in November. So the Jets' schedule after that Patriots game is pretty decent. I think that uh, seeing Darnold perform well in that spot was really encouraging to me. Yeah, we're going to talk more about Darnold in the waiver wire portion of the show later. Uh, but this dovetails really well with my boom of the week, Jamison Crowder. Nine targets, yeah. six catches, 98 yards, 12.8 fantasy points, and half-point PPR. Do you think he's a top-20 wide receiver in PPR, half-PPR formats going forward? I don't know if I would say top 20 because I think it's a major upgrade for the Jets, but I don't think it's going to be a super high-powered offense. And he's got Robbie Anderson there to take away some of the high-leverage targets. He's got Le'Veon Bell. Uh, Chris Herndon probably won't play for the Patriots game, but could be back after that one with his hamstring injury. So I think eventually there's going to be a bit of a crowding of the mouths. So I wouldn't say top 20 going forward, but I think – it's still okay to buy him because I think that the general perception on him will be lower than it should be. So which of your bench players had the biggest or most unexpected positive performance? And what did you miss when you decided to bench that player? Uh, Hunter Hunter Henry. Uh, Hmm. I was worried about the snap rate coming off that injury because it was a multi-week thing. It was a knee thing. And, uh, you know, I could see why they would want to be cautious. I did use him in the Scott Fishbowl because I needed to, because I had, <laughs> had some issues on that team for sure. So I used him there, but I had a dynasty league where I used Gerald Everett over Hunter Henry. And Ouch. obviously in retrospect, that didn't go so hot. I was concerned about the snap rate with Henry and I didn't wind up using him, but I'm not that mad about it because it means that he's going to be a really good asset going forward. If he can do that just coming off of his knee injury, it makes me feel really good about him. So while it was a disappointment not to use him, I am not that mad about it, I guess, just because it means it should lead to good things going forward. Yeah, I think it's always fair to be cautious with players coming back from injury like that. And I did, I had a similar evaluation of Hunter Henry coming into the week. I ranked him fairly low because I was worried about snap rate, just like you. Uh, mm-hmm. But speaking of Scott Fishbowl, that's where I had my biggest blow up on the bench. Uh, I had Curtis Samuel on the bench uh, in that league in favor of kind of an embarrassment of riches at wide receiver there. I have Odell Beckham, I have Julian Edelman, I have Josh Gordon, DJ Chark, Tara McLaurin, Michael Gallup, and clearly the Josh Josh Gordon injury was a dagger in my back. But I think this kind of ties back to that earlier discussion we had about diagnosing these funnel defenses, and I just missed that with Tampa Bay and Curtis Samuel. If I had put more stock into that line of thinking, I should have benched Michael Gallup because Dallas was a pretty likely candidate to go run heavy based upon their projected game script against the Jets. Now, that process might have turned out to be flawed looking at how that game played out. Uh, I mean, Dallas stayed run heavy anyway. Maybe they shouldn't have stayed run heavy. But uh, anyway, I ended up being a little bit of a slave to recency bias. I chased the points with Gallup instead of trusting those underlying air yards numbers with Samuel, which I I brought up on this show last week. So I feel like such a fish, like not saying, you know, (laughs) Samuel's in line. 
trying to you know kind of out produce the type of production we've seen over the past couple weeks. I missed it. Uh, I did get Samuel into one of my other lineups, thankfully, but I missed out on him and Scott Fishbowl. Uh, thankfully, it looks like I'm going to scrape by uh, in that league with a win, uh, despite a, a pretty poor week that, that Samuel would have pushed me, I think, a lot closer to 200 points, which... Man, in SFB, if you're not clearing 200 <laughs> points in any given week, you are not doing it right, man. I think that you you want to be hitting like 220, 230 at least to right. feel like you're you know you're hitting the cash line, so to speak, in Scott Fishbowl. Exactly. Who is your bust of the week? Uh, I'm actually going to go first here because this ties into what you were talking about with Darnold and Gardner Minshew earlier. I think your process was actually right because as I think back on it, I I, I guess I just became too much of a Gardner Minshew fanboy and. Yeah. Because I saw everything you saw with that matchup in New Orleans, thinking, you know what? I really like the Saints against the spread here. I really like the Saints defense. I think they've really stepped up in the wake of the Drew Brees injury. Had blinders on for Minshew, though. And what really stood out to me was the lack of trademark accuracy for Minshew. Only 14 of 29, so under 50% completion percentage, 163 yards, no touchdowns and interception. Didn't even crack five fantasy points. I think at this point, I'm actually not too worried about Gardner Minshew, mm-hmm. but we have to be really skeptical of anybody who's at all fringe going against the New Orleans defense, right? They're legit, right. don't you think? Well, that and they're going to slow things down with Drew Brees out. And sure. Brees still not throwing full-size football, so he's not going to be back yet. And, like, if I were Sean Payton, I'd do the exact same thing because if you're Drew Brees, if you have Drew Brees, you want that sample size to be big because you're a better team than the opposing team. I love Teddy Bridgewater. I think he's a very good quarterback, but he's a damn, I I shouldn't say that. I think that Teddy Bridgewater is a very competent quarterback, (laughs) but he is definitively a downgrade from Drew Brees. Therefore, you're going to run a slower pace. You're going to want to run the football more, and that leads to less less fun games. That's why, again, like that's partly why I'm not that concerned about the Cowboys. Again, maybe I should be, but the Saints defense is very good. They played them on the road. They... Uh, played the Packers at home. The Packers have had an outstanding defense this year outside of one game against Philadelphia. Uh, they've been uh, pretty much a shutdown team. And then they went on the road against the Jets. They lost Michael Gallup, didn't have Tyron Smith, didn't have Lyle Collins. So it, it feeds into that too, where I'm not that concerned about the Cowboys because I have so much respect for the Saints defense. Next week, Gardner Minshew gets the Bengals. So I have not been as in on Minshew as, uh, as a lot of people have. But I think next week, fire up them cannons because he could go nuts there. Yeah, the schedule for Minshew going forward is really good. Uh, kind of like what you talked about Darnold with after that Patriots matchup this coming week. Uh, his schedule softens up a lot. I think both those guys are interesting buy lows uh, in two quarterback formats. Uh, or I guess you're not buying low on Darnold, but you know what I mean. Right, um, right. But who was your bust of the week, Jim? I, I Sorry I, I kind of stepped in there and cut you off. <laughs> No, it's uh, I alluded to him before, but it was Malcolm Brown, and mm. I used him over some pretty viable pieces as like a flex type guy for this week because if you read like the the tea leaves, what the Rams have done this all this offseason, they matched the offer sheet on Malcolm Brown, they put him in bubble wrap during the preseason, did not do so with Daryl Henderson, and Brown did play seventy percent of the snaps. He had about sixty seven percent of the running back carries for that team, so the usage was there. But I think. I didn't get overconfident uh, with the passing work uh, from Malcolm Brown, but I may have overlooked the downsides of it a little bit too much. Like, oh, okay, he's running routes. Sure, he'll get maybe five targets in this game, and he had none. Uh, So I used him as a pretty viable flex piece, and I knew the matchup was hard. I knew there was a, a very real possibility he wouldn't do a whole lot as a rusher. 
but I figured he'd have touchdown equity in a game I expected the Rams to win, and I figured he would get at least some targets. So I did use him over some pretty viable pieces, like I sat Alshon Jeffrey. Should not have done that uh, in favor of uh, Malcolm Brown in one league. So overestimated his passing down work, and that really did bite me on Sunday. Which players' poor performance do you think might make them a good buy-low option heading into Week 7? Uh, I think let, let's rule out DeAndre Hopkins because, as yeah. with every week prior, he's been probably the most obvious guy. I, I, we have to expect he's going to bounce back here and start putting up big weeks eventually. Uh, but who else stands out to you uh, looking through that lens of buying low? We kind of talked about Michael Gallup before, but I think that uh, people could look at that and be like, oh, even with Amari Cooper out, he did nothing against the Jets. Uh, but Michael Gallup, because it sounds like Cooper's probably going to be okay, Gallup in the games, he has played alongside Amari Cooper. Let me get the actual number here. I believe has 27% of the team's targets this year. Yeah, 27.6% of the team's targets this year. He's been getting a good number of deep looks, and I would expect that Cowboys team to be pretty solid going forward. So if people are down on uh, Michael Gallup based on that one game, I think that he's probably the best buy within the Dallas offense that I am generally okay uh, with being into. Uh, But Gallup, I don't think that performance is representative of what we should expect going forward for him. That offense will be more efficient once they start to get healthier, which they should quite soon. And he has shown this year he can take advantage of the volume he is getting. I think that Michael Gallup is a guy I would be – looking to see what the what the ask is for him i like that call i I like buying secondary receivers like that too especially if they're coming off a down game but how about a number one receiver how about juju smith schuster the steelers didn't really need to pass in that game and with devlin hodges under center juju still led the steelers wideouts with four targets he only caught one of them for seven yards but mason rudolph should be back after pittsburgh's week seven bye so I feel like this is a good opportunity to go out and test the waters on Smith-Schuster because he's coming off a down game, because there is this uncertainty around the quarterback position there, because we saw him have some success with Mason Rudolph. Not as much as you know the draft equity that we put into him at the beginning of the year, but in general, I think this is a good point to go after him because I don't think his value has ever been lower. Yeah, it definitely hasn't. I think that the question I would have is, how are people viewing him? You know, if they're viewing him as being anything close to what he was preseason, then I'm not going to be able to match that. Uh, and I think the concern I have is that this offense, even when Rudolph was healthy, was really weird. Uh, like we saw the tap pass raid uh, that they had against Baltimore. That was really annoying. Juju was good in that game, uh, but he hasn't had more than eight targets this year. They're going to be as run heavy as they could possibly be. They're not going to throw the ball that deep. So, If people are just totally out on him because he underperformed against the Chargers, yeah, absolutely buy in. But if they still look at that name and think about what they paid for him at the beginning of the year, it'd probably be hard for me to give uh, value, what people would want there. So I think it really depends on perception. If they think that he is what he was against the Chargers, absolutely buy in because he's got Miami, Indy uh, as his next two games or his first two games after their bye week. I would be in on that. But if they are still viewing him as being somewhat near where, what he was before the season, I'd have a really hard time matching value there. Yeah, my feeling is that he's left a bad enough taste in most people's mouths to where yeah. his value is going to be suppressed. And I think you could take advantage of that. Uh, we're about to get into the Week 7 waiver wire strategy portion of the show. But before that, let's take a break for the sponsor. Uh, and that's Fantasy Draft, the only rake-free daily fantasy site in the business They're running the largest rake-free contests out there each and every week, and all told, Fantasy Draft is regularly paying out millions of dollars in prizes, and all of those winnings are rake-free. 
That's right, Fantasy Draft is the only daily fantasy site with no management fees taken out of the prize pools, and this isn't just a limited promotion. 100% of Fantasy Draft's contests are rake-free. Meanwhile, other DFS sites can continue to raise their rakes, squeeze prize pools, and make it harder for players like you to win. But at Fantasy Draft, the days of paying up to 16% of your entry fees to the house are over. Sign up at FantasyDraft.com today with our promo code 444, and you'll get a free 7-day trial on your first $1,000 of rake-free entry fees. That's FantasyDraft.com with the promo code 444, just like it's spelled in our web address, the number 4, F-O-R, the number 4. Don't miss your shot at millions of dollars in rake-free contests this season. Start playing at FantasyDraft.com today. All right, Jim, let's talk waivers. Week 7 is on the way. Uh, We have four teams on by coming up. Carolina, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Tampa Bay. At a base level, how well is your best redraft team doing this season? Uh, We kind of spun this the other way last week with uh, the worst team for Vlad Sedler. But I'm curious, when you have a team that's doing really well, what is your approach to the waiver wire in those sorts of situations? Yeah, I'm still trying to be aggressive uh, without making unnecessary moves. And by that, I mean... If there is some must-target guy, I'm not going to disregard him just because my team is doing well because that can change very quickly because injuries happen often in fantasy football. And you always want to prepare yourself for the inevitability of injuries. Uh, So I always want to do that. But the caution you have is that if your team is doing well, you probably have viable players on your bench. And you don't want to drop a viable player if you're adding someone who may have one week value, like if it's someone I think is going to contribute for the rest of the season, sure, I'm going to get them and I am okay giving up a quote unquote viable piece if I think their long term outlook is better. So for me, it's mostly taking more of a long term approach rather than a short term approach. Whereas if like I have a team that's not doing well, I need to plan around week seven specifically and try to juice up that team as much as possible for that specific week. Uh, but if it's a team that's doing well, I can take more of a long-term approach. So just kind of knowing where your team is and knowing how things are looking for you and whether you need to be desperate and win in week seven, or if you can think about week nine, week 10, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think there are any you know viable guys like that long-term at the running back position right now? Because it feels like a wasteland to me out there. When yeah. I look at the players who are under 50% ownership in Yahoo!, there aren't a whole lot of names that stand out as having a lot of long-term value. Yes, there are some handcuff types, but that's such a coin flip and, and less of a less a coin flip, more of like a dart throw or a dice roll. Is there anybody that stands out to you as a player who could come into a lot of value over the course of the end of the season at running back? Yeah, I think that Jamal Williams is very interesting uh, because mm. we saw him before his concussion actually outsnap Aaron Jones. And I would not expect that to be the case going forward because Aaron Jones was successful in the volume that he got when Jamal Williams is out. So my baseline expectation is that Williams snap rate will be around 30% uh, in the short term. But that Green Bay Packers offense is one to which you want exposure. They've got a great offensive line. People like to make jokes about Aaron Rodgers, but I still think he is a very good quarterback and one I want to tie my running backs to. And Jamal Williams, if he is you know involved in this offense, is going to get targets. There's also the possibility that I hope this doesn't happen because I have a lot of Aaron Jones, but something could always happen to him as well. And basically my, when I'm taking a long-term approach, I want exposure to good offenses and guys who can get targets in good offenses. Jamal Williams fits that. Uh, Justice Hill kind of fits that given that I'm concerned about Mark Ingram's role. He lost snaps to Justice Hill and Gus Edwards on Sunday and Hill would get targets on that team if he were to be on the field. So I think Jamal Williams and Justice Hill are two guys from a long-term perspective who have quite a bit of appeal to me. 
Yeah, I like that you brought him up. He's only 14% owned on Yahoo. And if you're listening to this early enough on Monday, we're recording this Monday morning, there's still a chance for you to maybe even get him onto your roster before waivers lock for him at kickoff of Monday Night Football. So that's a great call. Uh, a few other names I want to throw out at you here. Uh, D- Darrell Henderson. I mean, maybe we can expect Gurley to come out here, but you've talked about how Malcolm Brown was a bit of a bust this week, and I agree. Henderson looked pretty darn good in yeah. that game, and I'm excited that he finally got a little more opportunity to show off what he had us excited for in the preseason. Do you, do you think that there's a an avenue for Henderson to maybe take over for Brown as the primary backup there for L.A.? Yeah, I think so, because my the reason that I was lower on Henderson at the time was because of the way the Rams were handling him, where they were really protecting Malcolm Brown, and they weren't using Daryl Henderson at all. Uh, they used him a lot during the preseason. That, to me, said he was not ready, but then they showed on Sunday that they will give him a look, and he looked good in the, the volume that he got, which means that there is a path to him being a viable asset. And if you give Daryl Henderson, a guy who was crazy explosive in college, you know, is really, really good running back when he was at Memphis, if you give him volume, he's probably going to come through on it. Uh, I think that if he were in the Malcolm Brown role of playing 70% of the snaps, I would have a much higher target expectation for him than for Malcolm Brown. So I think Henderson makes a lot of sense too. Uh, the one thing that would make me favor a guy like Jamal Williams or Justice Hill or I guess Jamal Williams specifically over Daryl Henderson is that Jamal Williams is fighting one guy for that spot. Henderson's fighting two. And I think that does make me skew towards Williams there. Yep. A couple of the running backs who might have that more immediate impact you're looking for. Chase Edmonds at 34% ownership. Naheem Hines at 16% ownership. These guys are getting used enough week to week to where you can plug them in, hope that you know maybe game script flips in their favor or they get a lucky touchdown. I think those are guys that you can go after uh, if you need running back help right now. Uh, if you're digging a little deeper and are looking for that sort of short-term impact, you can also look to, and I might throw up a little in my mouth when I say this, Mark <laughs> Walton of the Miami Dolphins, only at 4% ownership. Benny Snell of the Steelers, uh, while Jalen Samuels is out, he got a lot of work there. Uh, again, admittedly in very, very favorable game script against the Chargers. Uh, and then the last guy I want to ask you about here, Jim, Brandon Bolden of the Patriots. He's only 1% owned, but... I mean, I was a Damian Harris truther coming into the season. I have held him in a couple leagues the yeah. whole year, just waiting for you know for him to come into his own here. But he can't get past Brandon Bolden on the depth chart, man. What's going on here? And do we actually need to pay attention to Bolden in fantasy? I hope not. <laughs> like, I kind of just want to take a hands-off approach with the Patriots because their goal line volume is so hard to predict. Uh, like, I assume to be Sony Michelle, but like. Tom Brady's doing sneaks, <laughs> even with James Devlin out. Like, they're still doing, you know, jet sweeps to Brandon Bolden. Uh, they're getting James White involved there. It's so hard to predict. I don't really want to go Bolden. I think uh, I think rather than taking him out of his, like, really good special teams role, they might promote Harris if something were to happen to Michelle or uh, White. So I think I will, might not go there, but I think the, the thought process is pretty fun. And it would be, uh, it'd be a wild be the most Patriots move of all time to just feature Brandon Bolton. I'd love it. Yeah, it's very reminiscent of the old LeGarrette Blunt years to me, and it's (laughs) extremely tilting. Uh, Let's move on to wide receiver. Uh, The first guy we got to talk about here, and we mentioned him earlier in the show, Jamison Crowder, 42% ownership. He's probably owned in most competitive leagues, but if he's out there, I think he's probably top of the food chain in terms of wide receiver ads. Uh, Aside from him, who else stands out to you this week? 
A guy who's at a similar ownership level is Philip Dorsett. He missed the mm-hmm. game last week with a hamstring injury. He's at 38% on Yahoo, uh, but he missed that game with a hamstring injury. Josh Gordon is banged up. He's actually had a couple of dings and dents uh, along the way. Uh, so Philip Dorsett's out there. He's had a good role this year. He's getting high leverage looks down the field. I would be very inclined to go get him. I'd prioritize Crowder over Dorsett because Crowder is not currently injured, which is generally a good thing. (laughs) Uh, But I would definitely recommend that. I like Dante Pettis, and I've hated him all year because they've had this really weird wide receiver rotation. But last week, Dante Pettis' snap break got up to 63%. It was, I think, 73% on Sunday. So they are narrowing that rotation. Debo Samuel's snap rate was also its highest it's been since week one. So I think they are coming out of that that wide receiver rotation, narrowing things up a bit, which is good for both those guys. I would not expect them to overtake George Kittle from like a target perspective. Why would they? But they can become viable pieces. And we've seen Pettis in the past excel when he has gotten volume, even while playing alongside George Kittle. Uh, so I think that Dante Pettis, given that snap rate, is really, really interesting to me and someone I'd be okay making a speculative ad. I'm not going to use him yet, but I think a speculative ad there makes a lot of sense. I've been making those types of speculative ads on the Niners receivers, whether it's Pettis or Debo Samuel or Mikey, Marquise Goodwin all year. And I mean, we'll talk more about them later, but I I just don't want to own those guys because it is such a, a nebulous yeah. situation. Um, a few other names throughout here. Auden Tate, again, in the competitive league, he's probably owned, but uh, 23% ownership in Yahoo League. So he's out there in some leagues and led the Bengals in targets, 12 targets in week six. He's got to be owned at this point uh, as long as A.J. Green is out. Now, that's probably the big rub here is when does A.J. Green come back? How quickly does he become reincorporated as the number one receiver in that offense? Because as soon as that happens, the value for these other Bengals receivers is going to start to dry up. Uh, If you want to dig a little deeper, going for guys who are very likely available in most leagues, Albert Wilson, 2% owned. He looked uh, pretty good, got significant volume kind of relative to coming off of injury uh, in his first week back for the Dolphins. Uh, And then Darius Slayton for the Giants, only 3% owned, and he matches up against the Cardinals' uh, passing defense with uh, Patrick Peterson coming back in Week 7. So uh, looking at that, uh, maybe we see Peterson uh, shadowing either uh, Sterling Shepard or Golden Tate, uh, and maybe that frees up more targets for Slayton uh, to get free against uh, the rest of that secondary. I think that he's an interesting guy. Uh, And then David Moore, 1% ownership. Uh, I mentioned him uh, briefly on last week's show. I have a feeling his usage could ramp up, especially with Will Disley being out. Uh, Does there anybody else at wide receiver who stands out to you, Jim? I would just want to reiterate Darius Slayton. I think that's a a really good one because he's a rookie uh, and they were ramping him up. It didn't get a lot of work early, but when they released Benny Fowler, that should have been a warning sign of, oh, okay, they feel good about Darius Slayton. And, you know, Slayton didn't do a lot against the Patriots, but like that's such a good secondary that you can't judge anybody based on what they do against them. Uh, So I think that Darius Slayton is a person I'd want to add to. He gets work down the field. Daniel Jones has shown a willingness to push the ball downfield. So I would want to mostly reiterate that I think that Darius Slayton is a good person to target. How about a tight end? Who are you looking at there? Because this is even worse than running back. There's just nobody good out there. Yeah, it's pretty grim across the board. Chris Herndon's uh, number has gone back down to 27% on Yahoo. And I think it sounds like he's probably going to miss next week against the Patriots, but that's hopefully a spot where you wouldn't be using him anyway. So right. if someone cut bait and you have a deep enough bench where you can stash him for a week or two, I think that would be a place I'd be willing to look. Dallas Goddard um, had a season high in targets with eight yesterday, and 
he hadn't had more than three in any game before that. But he's playing a lot of snaps. He's played 69% of the snaps or more in three straight weeks now. I'm curious what their personnel usage will look like once Deshaun Jackson gets back, because they very well could go to Djax, Alshon, and then Aguilar with Zach Ertz. But given the the troubles Nelson Aguilar has had this year, I wouldn't be all that shocked if they kept Goddard and Ertz out there and rolled with those two guys. Dallas Goddard, uh, 9% right now on Yahoo!, I don't think it's a terrible idea to go at him. Uh, Ricky Seals-Jones played a good number of snaps. His snap rate spiked uh, this past week. And the, the Browns, I believe, have a bye and then play the Patriots. Uh, but David Njoku won't be back for a while. So he's at 3% right now on Yahoo. I would say those are the guys who interest me. Uh, Dawson Knox coming off his bye is also interesting, given that they have Miami coming up next. Yep, I like all those calls. They were three of them I had highlighted on my list here. Uh, the one concern I have with Goddard is that that performance we just saw where he had eight targets for five catches, 48 yards, was pretty game script dependent. Like the yep. Eagles were chasing the Vikings that whole game. And so I'm a little worried that maybe he doesn't maintain that sort of target volume. But I agree with you that he probably deserves to be out there more than Nelson Aguilar at this point. Uh, a few other names I'll throw out. Uh, Noah Fant, 24% ownership. I don't love the player. I don't love the situation. But if Emmanuel Sanders does miss time, uh, and this is a game against the Chiefs in Week 7 where the Broncos should have to throw a fair bit, uh, Fant could see an uptick in targets there, kind of similar to what we saw for Goddard uh, in this past week. Rhett Ellison, uh, if Evan Ingram remains out. Uh, Luke Wilson uh, as the speculative ad to maybe pick up where Will Disley left off. And then Seth DeValve as uh, another guy, really deep only consideration here uh, in light of the Jeff Swain concussion. Uh, maybe DeValve sees some targets if you're really, really desperate. Uh, but the other guy I am legitimately interested in at this point is Darren Fells. Only 3% owned on Yahoo. This Texans tight end position is one that I was interested in to start the year. The problem was is when I was doing all these best ball drafts and whatnot, I was going after Jordan Thomas, who ended up on the IR. So I don't have any Darren Fells. Uh, I have you know Jordan Akins and maybe one or two best balls. But this is a spot where we're seeing production week after week. And yes, some of it is relative to the matchups. But Deshaun Watson has shown a willingness to throw to the tight end to, to throw to the tight end position. And I think we have to take notice and give a little bit more you know, credence to Fells than just 3% ownership. What do you think of that situation? Yeah, I don't think he should be 3%. I think that's uh, that's egregiously low. So it's definitely worth uh, noting that he is worth adding. I don't know the level of confidence I would have in using him when Kenny Stills gets back because I could very easily see them uh, using fewer tight ends when that does occur. It seems like they're not super enthused with Kiki QT, uh, which is why his snap rate's been kind of low, even with Kenny Stills being out. But mm-hmm. Kenny Stills is a really good player. And if I were game planning for as Bill O'Brien, I'd want three receivers on the field when I had Will Fuller, Kenny Stills, and DeAndre Hopkins healthy. So I would add him because he shouldn't be that low owned. Like if you're in a 14 team league, he's he's a viable piece for uh, as a bi-week fill-in. But I would proceed with caution just because of the concern around Kenny Stills once he gets back. Let's move on to quarterback, and we'll start as we usually do with two quarterback and super flex type pickups. Uh, there aren't many options this week, as usual. Only two guys I can really throw out there. Yeah. 
Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's going to be at Buffalo this coming week, so you don't necessarily want to be using him. I mean, you might not want to use anybody from the Dolphins' offense, uh, but <laughs> you know, if Fitzpatrick does get in there over Rosen, I, I don't know if we can even count on that, right? Like, I would assume right. that they want to continue the tank. That Rosen's going to continue to get looks, and yeah. even if you know Ryan Fitzpatrick is deemed the starter for one week, it might not last even through right. that game, let alone the whole week. Uh, I, I don't think there's a whole lot of stock we need to put into him, even in two quarterback formats. Do you agree? Right. I think like in a super flex league, I would probably just use a running back or receiver there rather than go Fitzpatrick. Uh, just because, like you said, the odds he winds up getting benched are pretty high. Uh, it looks like Rosen's probably going to start there, so they'd probably wind up being moot. Uh, but like... If it's a super flex league, I might rather go with a wide receiver or a running back than go with Fitzpatrick, given how good Buffalo has been. Uh, Miami's implied total is 11.75 right now for that game, uh, based on the numbers of FanDuel Sportsbook. So I think if it's a super flex league, I might honestly just flex a running back or a wide receiver in that spot. Another offense that we might not just want any piece of is the Titans offense. We have Ryan Tannehill uh, going against the Chargers this week. Mm -hmm. uh, But I mean, and that's actually proving to be not that tough of a matchup, especially from a passing perspective. But I I feel like we have to have the same sorts of concerns here with Tanny in that maybe he loses the job back to Mariota. Maybe it doesn't matter just because the setup there for him isn't very good in the first place. But I do think that there is more potential for him to take this job and run with it, even if he isn't great. And I think we have to be cognizant of that in two quarterback formats because anybody who has a you know a locked in starting role should be owned. I mean, you know, right. we have Colt McCoy getting rostered, uh, Case Keenum, Josh Rosen, like all these guys are owned for a reason. Tannehill kind of enters that tier of quarterbacks. Before we talk about his value going forward, how much longer would you be willing to hold Mariota in a two quarterback format? Um, it really depends on the depth of the league. Uh, personally, I'd be willing to hang on just because I know that there's probably not a lot out there and it's still a rather fluid situation. I don't think they've announced whether they'll go with Tannehill next week. I'd assume they would. Uh, but I would probably still hold Tan or, or Mariota for a little bit longer to see what happens. If you need the bench spot, sure. But like, I'd rather hold on. And just kind of see how things go. Because, like, Mariota, when he plays, is not a terrible fantasy asset. Uh, he's not, he has not been a good real world quarterback, but he's still been a good fantasy asset. So if he were to become the starter again, you would want to use him in a two quarterback league. But the same thing goes for Tannehill. And I think that's why I would be much higher on him than Fitzpatrick. Because, like you said, the Chargers have not been that dangerous of an opposing defense. Tannehill, if we'll remember his time from Miami, will run a bit. That's certainly something that I want a piece of. Uh, So I think that that would be a pretty good situation. So Tannehill would very much be a more of a priority add, but I would still hold Mariota because if he does get that starting job back, he'd be someone I'd be willing to use in a two-quarterback league for sure. Yeah, I was actually expecting this sort of move from Mariota to Tannehill to happen at some point in one of my leagues where I have a a very clear locked in one and two at quarterback. Mm -hmm. So I was holding both Mariota and Tannehill. I basically handcuffed these guys on my bench, just waiting for the bye weeks to come. And so with that in mind, I can't really drop either of them going forward because I only need them for a specific purpose. But if you have enough quarterback depth to where that isn't the case, I think you could maybe cut bait on Mariota. And I think that that's the guy that you would cut in this situation based upon how he's played, based upon how competent Tannehill did look in relief on Sunday. But 
in general, I think that we're going to see this kind of go back and forth, kind of like we've seen with Fitzpatrick and Rosen mm-hmm. in Miami. Does Tannehill being under center give you any more interest or confidence in the receivers there? Uh, you know, Corey Davis, A.J. Brown, Delaney Walker? No, because none of them get enough of the pie. No one has a command of the market share there. Marcus Mariota, when he did throw the football, threw it pretty effectively. The problem was, A, he didn't throw that much, and B, he got sacked a ton. So I think there are bigger concerns there than Marcus Mariota's arm in this Tennessee offense. So I don't think that's going to cure anything. In fact, I would say it'd be a downgrade in my mind uh, for them. I know that they did stuff uh, against Denver after Tannehill came in, but that would not be my expectation going forward. Let's get into quarterbacks for, you know, one quarterback formats, you know, streaming considerations. Uh, You mentioned Darnold early. I want to throw him out here as an ad, not for streaming, but for long term. Uh, He's only 16% owned on Yahoo. We don't want to use him against New England. But as you noted earlier, his schedule for the rest of the year looks legitimately great for fantasy production. So that's a name to keep in the back of your mind if you're looking for a more long term solution. But for the listeners out there who are looking for someone to use just this week, week seven, who are you looking at, Jim? Who stands out to you at maybe 50% ownership or less? Yeah, Jacoby Brissett's at 42%. And I think that we need to put him in the Ben Roethlisberger category of where you do not touch him when he is on the road. <laughs> when he is at home, he is a very fine fantasy asset. Because when they've been at home, the Colts have been much more willing to throw the ball. And they've been much more aggressive as an offense. And that was even in a game where T.Y. Hilton didn't play. Now T.Y. Hilton has had a week to rest up, should be fully healthy. And their next five games are at home against Houston, at home against Denver, which is not, I don't think, a spot we need to avoid anymore. On the road against Pittsburgh, eh. But then at home against Miami and at home against Jacksonville. And maybe by that time, Jalen Ramsey won't be there. They're at home for four of the next five games. Their game after that is on the road against Houston, which is also indoors. And I think the turf slash indoors factor plays a pretty major role in how willing they are to throw the football. And then they're at home against Tennessee. So the schedule going forward for Jacoby Brissett sets up really well, where I would assume we haven't seen them really unleash him all that much, but he will be less leashed, if I can phrase it that way, (laughs) than he has been at times this year. I think that's just the way I want to view him is in this lens of, I really don't want to use him if he's on the road because I think they're going to put him in a bottle. But if he's uh, if he's at home, totally okay. Daniel Jones, 29% on Yahoo, at home against Arizona. Heck yeah, light him up, let's go, baby. I'd be totally on board with that. He's had he's looked bad, uh, but like I don't care. He's going to run a little bit. Uh, he's 29% owned. If you need a quarterback, that's totally okay. Uh, I would definitely be on board with that. Uh, I think those would be the main guys I would be focusing on. If you need someone who is a little bit lower, maybe you can have uh, more of a long-term approach with, I would agree with you on Marcus Mariota, but it also might be time to start picking up some Cam Newton uh, because he's Mm. been, he's being dropped. I think the, the sentiment is that they'll go with Kyle Allen. I would not blame them if they were to do that, but a rested Cam Newton is going to be better for that offense. Not saying as a passer, but better for the offense as a whole than Kyle Allen. So, I think it's speculatively okay to pick up Cam Newton uh, in leagues where he has been dropped. Yeah, the other name we need to throw out here is Josh Allen against the Dolphins this week. He's at 49% ownership. Chances are, again, in competitive leagues, he's going to be pretty sought after based upon the matchup. So you might have to spend a little Mm -hmm. bit more fab to get him. And maybe if you are limited in your fab at this point, uh, you 
maybe just put uh, kind of a price enforcing bid on him that's a, a lower dollar value just in case. But uh, then you go after either Brissett or Daniel Jones. Uh, if you really want to scrape the bottom of the barrel, Joe Flacco is facing the Chiefs. They're going to have to throw a little bit. He's only 8% owned. But I think all these other guys we've mentioned take pre- precedent over Flacco. Uh, the only other name I'll throw out here, and he doesn't really fit the criteria because currently he's owned in about 60% of Yahoo leagues, is Gardner Minshew. Yeah. Uh, as Jim noted earlier, he's going to be at Cincinnati this week. That's a good spot. And you might be able to kind of buy low on Minshew after that tough matchup he had against the Saints. There's a chance that maybe he gets dropped because of that. People think, oh, well, this guy isn't for real. Mm -hmm. uh, And they don't look ahead to the matchup against Cincinnati. Getting back to Brissett and Daniel Jones, I I think those are probably the two guys who are going to be most commonly available at a reasonable cost this week. Yeah. Which one of them would you rather use if you only needed them for week seven? Uh, let's say you were like a Jameis Winston or a Baker Mayfield sure. owner or you were streaming Kyle Allen. Uh, who, who do you want just for week seven, Brissett or Daniel Jones? Just week seven is Daniel Jones. I don't think there is a better spot maybe outside of the Dolphins in all football except for facing the Cardinals. Patrick Peterson's back, and that does matter. But there's still going to be a fast-paced team, which is a large part of the reason we want to target quarterbacks facing Arizona. Their offense is competent enough to encourage shootouts, as we saw against Atlanta, and they're still going to be a bad secondary when Patrick Peterson gets there. Sure, it's going to take one option off the table, but they've actually got a decent number of options in uh, New York. Sterling Shepard may not be able to go for that game, which would be a concern, but uh, we make it Saquon Barkley back. Evan Engram is there. Darius Slayton's look pretty good. So I think Daniel Jones is a really, really good option for week seven. Yeah. And I think you actually do. You would rather stream against Arizona than Miami because like you said, Arizona pushes the pace. They have a good passing offense themselves. So they're going to push the other team to keep up with scoring. Whereas Miami is so bad that you can just switch into run-only mode against them. Uh, So yeah, I agree Jones is probably the guy for Week 7. Beyond that, though, I do like Brissett more. I like Darnold more. So there's... Uh, you know, a calculus you have to do for each of your teams is how long do I need this quarterback for? Do I want them just for this week? Do I want them for longer than that? And that needs to impact how much uh, or how you prioritize your waiver decisions. Uh, Let's quickly touch on some defensive streamer options for week seven. There are a lot of teams that are in that kind of 50 to 70% ownership range where maybe they're available in some leagues, but not others. So I think if you're looking for a defensive streamer, the first teams you need to look for are the Niners uh, against Washington, 64% ownership. Buffalo uh, against Miami, 62% ownership. New Orleans against Chicago, 60% ownership. Green Bay uh, against Oakland, 52%. Uh, and then Tennessee against the Chargers, who have been sneakily really bad. Uh, the Titans are at 51% ownership. Uh, of those five teams, Jim, uh, how would you prioritize them? Just give me a quick ranking. I would go with the 49ers one, uh, Bills two. It's really hard to differentiate which one I'd prefer there, uh, but they're both like, they might be the top two options in all of football this week uh, mm-hmm. as far as defensive options go. I would say Packers are three because they are at home, and I value that quite a bit. Uh, and Oakland's not bad, but their def- their offensive line is nowhere near what it used to be, and they're, they have liabilities. And the Green Bay Packers defense, again, has been very, very good this year. So I would say f- maybe I should go Bills one. Okay, Bills one, 49ers two, Packers three among that group. Yeah, I, I still like the Saints there, even though they're on the road. I, I would prefer to use them at home, but against Chase Daniel or Mitchell Trubisky or whoever they run out there at quarterback, like that's been Tree Cohen. Yeah. Right. That's been an offense that I am willing to target with the defenses uh, facing them, and I think the Saints are legit good. A couple teams that are a little bit lower owned Kansas City at Denver, Arizona 
at New York uh, against the Giants, I should say. Uh, do you have interest in either of them? Like the Arizona Cardinals defense isn't good, but you know, right. facing Daniel Jones, maybe that's okay. Right. Uh, I think you could take the similar line of approach uh, with the Giants defense, not because Kyler sure. Murray is not good, but because they're going to throw the ball a ton, which is good for offensive efficiency, but it also gives additional chances for sacks, for interceptions, for turnovers. So I think just from a volume perspective, the Giants defense is an option. If you're super desperate, I would very much prioritize the Chiefs. The Chiefs defense is one that is wildly different on the road than they are at home and Denver's probably going to run the ball as much as they can and they'll probably be able to do so effectively in the spot but it's still Joe Flacco uh Joe Flacco can still make mistakes the Chiefs should be favored in this game the Chiefs should win this game so Chiefs definitely would be my priority there and they're probably available uh but I think the Giants if you are really desperate are not a terrible play just because the volume for their defense to get sacks and picks will be there so on the flip side of all these player ads that we're looking to make, we have to drop some guys. Who are some players that you are already planning to cut or look at cutting when you set your waiver claims this week? I think the Chiefs receivers at this point are probably pretty close to being cuttable. Uh, you know, Byron Pringle, I added a bunch of spots. Uh, he's only 6% on Yahoo, so I may be alone in that. Uh, actually, not 6 He's 6% started, I guess. So uh, Byron Pringle, I think that's... If you really need a spot, uh, Miko Harmon and Demarcus Robinson are there as well. Just because now that Tyree Kill is healthy, a majority of the targets are going to go to Tyree Kill and uh, to Travis Kelsey. So I think that those are two guys who are kind of on that edge where if you really need a spot, I would be pretty okay uh, with cutting bait on them. So I think those are probably the ones that would stick out most to me. Those Chiefs wide receivers, the tertiary options in Kansas City, I think, are on that edge where you can probably move along if you really do need to. Yep, they all made my list as well. Hardman, Demarcus Robinson, and Pringle. Like you said, now that Hill's back, I just don't think it's crazy to cut those tertiary guys. Uh, on the yeah. same note, I mentioned this earlier, the 49ers wide receiver core, I'm just not really interested in trying to sort them out week to week. I think those types of players are fine for best ball, but in a regular league where you have to mm-hmm. set a lineup, I, I just don't want any part of that. Uh, a few other names to throw out here. Willie Sneed. I, I had some optimism for him with Marquise Brown being out, but it's clear now that Mark Andrews is the Ravens' number one receiver, and this is still a run-first team. Uh, I don't know if Snead is really worth holding on to if you have you know other better viable options at, at wide receiver. Uh, Paul Richardson on Washington. It just seems like this is going to be the Adrian Peterson and Terry McLaurin show going forward, and I don't know if you want to put any stock into the rest of the, the pieces in that offense what do you think about dropping Chris Thompson? We don't know a whole lot yeah. about his foot injury at this point, but he's cuttable, right? I was going to bring him up uh, as well. He's a 65% on Yahoo right now, and it's a bad offense. They're going to trail, which is good, but there is no touchdown equity there because they're probably not going to score any touchdowns. Uh, so I think that Chris Thompson right now is very droppable. OJ Howard is still at 70% on Yahoo. Um, I don't know why he is, but he <laughs> is. Uh, he's on a bye this week. I would be very okay uh, with moving away from there. Nelson Aguilar is someone I picked up in a lot of spots for that week where they had all the injuries. Kind of been hanging on, uh, but it looks like Deshaun Jackson at least has a chance to be back, so I'd be okay moving on from him as well. What about Sterling Shepard? Did Golden Tate just kill his fantasy value? Can we move on from Shepard? No, uh, I would not, uh, because Sterling Shepard's good, um, and... In the game that they played together, Darius Slayton actually played, I believe, one more snap than Golden Tate. So it was probably because he was coming off a suspension. But I think 
My baseline assumption is that when Shepard is healthy, he is probably going to be the 1A to Engram's 1B. The concern that I have is that this is his second concussion this year already, so I don't know how long he's going to be out, but I I would not be shocked if this weekend beyond. Uh, So I'd like to hold on to him if I can, but I would not be shocked if it's a multi-week absence for Sterling Shepard. What about Baker Mayfield? Going on by in week seven. After he is done with that, he goes at New England, at Denver versus Buffalo. The schedule just does not line up for him to make a whole lot of sense on the bench of a one-quarterback team. Yeah. Are you willing to cut bait on Mayfield? Yeah, I think you could have cut bait on him a while ago, honestly. That's uh, because it's a one-quarterback league, and this is a team that is going to get better as the year goes along because they have a lot of new faces here. There's a lot of changeover. Freddie Kitchens is the first-time head coach. It's understandable that they would struggle early in the year, but you don't have time to wait on that uh, in a one-quarterback league. So, yeah, totally okay to, to drop Baker. I am a huge Baker Mayfield believer, but I think there is legitimately no reason to hang on to him right now. Uh, so they go on, on the road at Denver the week after they play New England. They play Buffalo at home. Even at home, I don't know if I could trust him there. So the next time you're looking at Baker as being a – viable play i would say in a one quarterback league is when they're at home at pitts or against pittsburgh and that's on a thursday night so it's november 24th the next time that baker mayfield gets a legitimately smashed spot so i love baker i'll be back on him in on him eventually but i think there's no reason to hold him in a one quarterback league right now i want to wrap up this segment with a thought experiment for you jim i ended up in a league with darren waller and austin hooper i was actually able to pick up austin hooper off of waivers Uh, earlier in the year because the benches in this league are really short. Uh, And because of that, though, now that Waller is off of bye, I don't necessarily have a need for Austin Hooper. Uh, I am able to start two tight ends thanks to a wide receiver tight end flex spot, but I don't really know how to approach the situation going forward. Like trying to make a trade with one of them is the obvious line, but if I don't get any bites... How worth it do you think is it to hold two top eight tight ends when I really only want to be starting one of them per week? Uh, What do you think? Well, I think that because you have the flex spot, those guys are actually not bad flex plays uh, because they're tight ends, which stinks. But Darren Waller's target share in the Oakland offense is like 90%, basically. It's a (laughs) slight exaggeration. I think it's like 27%, though. And Austin Hooper hasn't had fewer than six targets in any game this year. He has uh, 20% of the targets in a high-volume passing offense and a good amount of touchdown equity. So I actually don't think they're bad flex plays, so I would hold them there. I know you don't need them, but I think that they're actually— those are two of the very few tight ends you could justify as a flex play. Yeah, the other thing I like about having both of them is that they are insurance for each other on the chance that one of them gets hurt. And we know that tight ends tend to get hurt a little bit more often than other positions. But I think that this type of thing comes up every once in a while with tight ends, with quarterbacks. It's like we only really want to carry one of them on our rosters, especially in a league like this with a short bench. But it's hard to know when it's okay to keep two of them. I think this is one of those situations, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned. Uh, Let's close down the show with this, Jim. Just for flex considerations, owners who may simply want to go after the most valuable player in a vacuum, uh, who are your top three waiver targets, uh, you know, kind of regardless of position? And let's let's throw Jamison Crowder out. Let's assume he's owned. Sure. Uh, who, who do you have beyond him? Chase Edmonds is kind of on that edge. Uh, I don't think that he's going to overtake David Johnson, but I think because he's been good enough uh, in the volume he has gotten, I would not be shocked if he continues to get some volume going forward. So I would put Chase Edmonds pretty high on that list. I would put Daniel Jones as a quarterback pretty high on that list just because 
if you need a quarterback, I tend to stream quarterbacks quite a bit. Uh, so I probably need a quarterback in a lot of my leagues, which means I'll be going after Daniel Jones uh, fairly often. I did not talk about Auden Tate before, but I agree with your assessment that uh, he is someone who is very much worth having because he's this big body guy getting a lot of targets in close to the end zone. Uh, so I would be probably focusing on those as the main guys I'd be targeting this week. Uh, so Chase Edmonds, Daniel Jones, Auden Tate, the main guys who stand out most to me for this week. Yeah, my picks are very similar. Tate's on my list. I think he has to be probably the top wide receiver ad beyond Crowder. Uh, similar to your Chase Edmonds call, I think it's worth throwing a dart at Daryl Henderson, seeing if maybe he sticks and takes over more of that workload from Malcolm Brown. I, I'm not totally sold on that. It could just sure. have been a bad matchup against the Niners that dictated you know, that Brown had a tougher time than Henderson, but I'm interested in Henderson because we know the talent is there. And then similar to your uh, Daniel Jones take, for you know a quarterback you want this week, I'll go back to Sam Darnold here as a quarterback I want beyond Week 7. So if you're looking for a more long-term quarterback, I think Darnold is number three for me. Jim, thanks a lot for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, why don't you let folks know where they can find your work uh, and find you on social media? Yeah, I am at Jim Sonnes on Twitter, J-I-M-S-A-N-N-E-S. And then uh, my podcasts are over on the Number Fire Daily Fantasy podcast feed for DFS stuff. Also have a betting podcast called Covering the Spread uh, with Dr. Ed Fang, breaking down college football and NFL each week. Uh, so you can find those wherever you get your podcasts. Greg, I want to thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you once again. It's been a while. Yeah, we'll have to do it again sometime soon. Uh, Jim, thanks again for coming on. Listeners, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Greg Sauce. You can follow the website at 444Football on Twitter. Uh, be sure to head over to 444.com to check out all of the other you know streaming waiver wire articles we have. I link to those in the show notes if you want to check them out. But they're a good supplement to this podcast that we do every week to kind of maybe cover players that I might have missed. Uh, you know, We only have so long to talk about these guys. So check out those articles, get subscribed at 444.com, use the promo code TMAP, that's T-M-A-P, and you'll get 25% off whichever subscription you go for. Uh, otherwise, John and Anthony will be back later this week with a Sneaky Starts episode. I will be back again next week to do another one of these. Until then, thank you for listening to the Most Accurate Podcast. Let us teach you to rise or fall. There's no dream for a song.